well, thank you again uh, for for doing this. Uh, how are you doing in in terms of uh, where are you? How are you uh, in terms of going through this uh, quarantine lockdown period in England? Yeah, so I I, I live in London um, at the moment, and London has been the epicenter of coronavirus infections, or, or it has been in the UK, which has had, you know, depending on which evidence you look at, either the worst uh, course of infections and deaths in Europe or uh, the second worst. Um, and it's been okay. Um, I think I'm extraordinarily privileged in that, um, you know, I've just, I've just bought my own flat and I live there with my wife. We don't have any children. We both have jobs that we can do. Um, largely digitally from home. So we've been okay. Um, I was extraordinarily worried in the sort of early stages when, um, you know, in March, when it, when it looked like the UK government maybe was going to resist locking down for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, and I, I, was, I was feeling incredibly anxious, largely for other people that I knew who, you know, were having to take the tube every day or, you know, had pre-existing conditions. So uh, I'm very good friends with somebody who's immunodepressed. So they, 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 they don't really have much immune system because of sort of pre-existing medical conditions. Just thinking about how vulnerable the entire situation made us. So I was, I was actually fairly relaxed and happy during the lockdown because, you know, I, it, it didn't sort of materially affect me and, and most of the people that I knew were safe. I, I'm a bit more worried now because we're in this condition of unlocking And it seems very ad hoc. It seems very driven by political agendas. And it uh, appears to have a high possibility that things are going to go very badly wrong and that we might get um, a secondary peak, as is already happening in places, you know, various cities in China, in Korea. And they were able to beat the total infection numbers down lower than we've been able to. So I think we have some real uh, material reasons to be quite worried And that's before we get to things like the university sector where I'm employed as a lecturer. Um, you know, I've seen studies that are saying universities will be the worst affected industry, higher education, um, largely because of its dependence on foreign students and this kind of neoliberal business model that's been uh, sort of forced to adopt. And UK universities are incredibly exposed to that. And yeah, so this might You might be moving into more worrying times, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And we can see, as you said, that the, the model of UK universities is particularly vulnerable because it relies a lot on this idea of mobility, receiving students from abroad. So as well, we, we are already seeing this, yeah, these cuts. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's extremely, extremely difficult to to predict uh, <laughs> what's gonna be the the, the 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 future of of this yeah uh, of this model of higher education. I don't know. I was uh, thinking about uh, how I don't know a couple of years ago or something like that. Para academic structures uh, relying on video calls and so seem a kind of far-fetched or <laughs> uh, 
extravaganza to 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 learn and now is the the mainstream solution for <laughs> for these times but but i don't know if this could replace the traditional physical idea of sharing a space in a room with visual and physical cues to provide feedback it's like it's very strange yeah i mean it's it's, it's interesting from my perspective because obviously I'm well known as an advocate of the emancipatory potentials, if not actualities of, of technology. So I, it, it puts me in a curious position where, um, on the one hand, I, I can see that there's ways that we can embrace this technology and use it um, in interesting and new ways that can, can open up new forms of um, pedagogy. But like the practical realities of it are that you know universities tend to have quite poor technology, and it's only it's going to be used purely to prop up the existing kind of business model, which is in itself sort of abusive, unsustainable, that tends to, you know, um, literally reduce students to purely sort of economic units. Um, but it does kind of present this kind of funny conundrum where, you know, students tend to be quite, um, you know, almost, I don't know if this is the right term, but kind of skeuomorphic or certainly sort of... Um, very traditionalist, very um, uh, neat space in real life. You know, they want those contact hours, partially, I think, because they misunderstand what higher education is. Um, and there's there's a kind of, there's a resistance, especially from students to, you know, digitalization and to, um, which is which is interesting, I think. Um, so on the one hand, I would kind of want to defend the, the potential technology to deliver something interesting. I mean, in the, the reality would just be it's going to be shaped by the economic needs of universities to continue to, if not thrive, then subsist under the present sort of funding models, which is where money largely comes from recruiting student numbers. And um, yeah, the, there are severe dangers for, um, I think, for the kind of existing educational experience. So it's curious. I'm, I'm often in um, meetings where I. I'm trying to defend the, the sort of craft labour process of uh, higher education teaching, largely because strategically, if you don't, if you do go to completely sort of video-based uh, lectures, especially if they're recorded, you certainly do open up a space in which um, you know you could have makes mass redundancies much easier. Um, mm -hmm. This was a this was a huge problem that was being talked about maybe four years ago, five years ago, when people were discussing. MOOCs, so massively open online courses, as being the future of um, university education, you were going to have, you know, everybody was just going to look at lectures by the single best person in that field. Um, and, and, you know, the, the sort of very elite universities, especially in America, were kind of promoting this as the new paradigm. And it didn't take off largely because students, students want to be away from home after they've, they've been at school. They want to you know, have this period of freedom, and along with that, they want real life interaction with um, you know university lecturers. This just seems to be what they want, and that that defeated it. My worry is that maybe it's going to come in through coronavirus. It seems um, possible at least. I think I think I met you uh, the first time. Uh, the first accelerationist uh, uh, workshop in Goldsmiths ten years ago. And um, I, yeah, I guess I would love you to reflect 
on on the term because uh, you and Nick wrote the manifesto that it became extremely popular. But then you didn't use it in inventing the future. Uh, but also, I would like what I would like you to discuss in the way that the right has been more successful in appropriating the term and having a discourse and. What do you think the failings of the left were within just the term? Be, just before we address this question, I, I would like um, to, to introduce this news that I've just read right now from Yahoo, Yahoo News uh, that says far-right civil war accelerationists called the Boogaloo Boys are appearing at protests in U.S. around the country with guns and Hawaiian shirts that I found. Like, this is hilarious, hilarious. It's like how this term now is like uh, in, in <laughs> the most weird places. Yeah, so, I mean, I can, I can talk about all of that. I'll start at the beginning. So the, so the term accelerationism is basically, it was <laughs> in a sort of philosophical political context was initially developed by Ben Noyes, um, He was a sort of anti-accelerationist. He um, you know, developed it as a critical term. It's a term that's supposed to be um, uh, a term of a term of opprobrium. Uh, so then it's interesting that various people on all sides then pick up this critical term, this sort of negative term that's supposed to be attacking them, and use it. Um, and uh, I mean, Nick and I sort of took it deliberately so that we could appropriate it for kind of rhetorical purposes. And we used it in the Accelerationist Manifesto, which is, you know, a left Accelerationist Manifesto. Um, it's certainly not the sort of accelerationism that might be being talked about um, in terms of far-right movements in the United States and elsewhere today. Um, we sort of abandoned it largely because of, within the sort of philosophy, politics kind of communities that were discussing it, we largely thought that it was it was maybe unhelpful because it tended to give rise to, you know, the very most stupid, crudest kinds of interpretations of what it could mean. So in the context of our work, it was uh, do more capitalism, get to communism, which is not really ever what we have argued. Um, uh, so we, we, we sort of deliberately edited that out from, from inventing the future. Um, to avoid those kinds of confusions and the, the sort of crude idea um, that, it, that it kind of referred to. But then there's this whole history of its appropriation by the right, which is really interesting. So as I kind of understand it, that this is a term that's kind of, they've been made aware of through Nick Land, but through Noise's application of this negative term to uh, Nick Land's work. So talking about, about it as an accelerationism Um, and this then kind of through Nick Land's connections through the neo, sort of digital neo-reactionary sphere, this term kind of takes on a, a sort of uh, certain currency in um, sort of underground digital far-right spaces. And this then kind of now it's appropriate. It's interesting you mentioned the, the, the sort of um, uh, boogaloo people. I was reading yeah. a long article about where Uh, this this whole boogaloo um, idea comes from, and it's this. It, it's basically it's sort of. Film, it, no? 
Yeah, it's from it's, it's from this film, Electric Boogaloo Two. Now this yeah. is being used as, used in memes about five ten years ago, um, and it was it, it's being referred to. It, it basically refers to a new civil war w- within America. So the yeah. Boogaloo people are interesting because some of them some of them are just uh, you know uh, you might call them sort of skull mask Nazi commando types um, who are the ones who've maybe most applied this term accelerationism. So these these would be um, uh, sort of tiny terrorist, ultra, ultra Nazi terrorist cells. They use the term, again, in a very ultra crude way, which basically just refers to, we want to make things worse to create a race war. So they're basically, they're, their political theory comes um, via Charles Manson. This is basically their, their what, what they're after. Um, so they, they they want to, you know, and, and this this idea has certainly provoked, uh, you know, mass uh, shooting incidents in the U.S. This is often what they are citing. This is often the kind of their basic political theory is that they're going to, you know, commit acts of mass violence. This will create backlash. This will create a race war, which will enable them to have uh, some kind of secondary civil war. Um, apparently, the, the the Boogaloo people do contain some of them, but they also contain some people who are just um, gun rights enthusiasts, and there's some um, interesting kind of conflicts. Um, and then they've got the Hawaiian shirts and also igloos because they were going for kind of um, words that sound like boogaloo, but which could be um, passed through. Uh, you know, when social media sites are filtering for the term, so they ha- they came up with the terms big igloo, which means <laughs> so they've got these igloos, and also big luau, which is why they're. <laughs> Why they're wearing Hawaiian shirts, um, but to sort of turn to the kind of like like the, the the yeah the meat of it. I mean, I think this may be something something flawed in the term accelerationism, but it's um, that it maybe implies something too crude to be used that effectively for the kind of things that I'm after, um, and that you know whether sort of negatively applied to leftist politics or positively applied by people practicing far-right fascist politics, it tends to index something very simplistic that I think misses you know, most, most of what's really going on. Um, and I don't think that the, the sort of the right accelerationists are going to um, yeah. get what they want here. I don't think it's going to work out in the way that they, that, that they expect, though it, though it won't have necessarily good confidence. Yeah, talking to Pete Waffendon, Waffendel um, last uh, Monday, yeah, we were discussing his text on yeah left accelerationism, and and we were thinking that maybe one of the problems uh, the, that left accelerationism had was the way that it was already in the present presupposing uh, the possibility. Like it didn't have a workout understanding or suggestion of what the role of the individual was in relationship to the collective. It, it didn't uh, go beyond uh, just kind of presupposing that an individual has rational capacity and this could be uh, advanced and kind of put forward, but that kind of relationship between the individual and the collective was not really worked out. And uh, on the other hand, 
the right-wing accelerationist has that very well worked out. I mean, they know, you know, who, what forms of individual they wants to, uh, you know, advance uh, very clearly. Um, what do you do? You think that uh, the, within the work that you and Nick, you have kind of work out better this. Uh, problem. I mean, you talk about the common sense, and you bring Laclau and you know the, hegemon, the Gramscian concept of hegemony. Do you think these are uh, concepts and ideas that can work as a substitute in order to work out this relationship between the I and the we? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put it in those terms because I think that's already too abstract to okay. in terms of I, I, I and we. I mean, my, my current sort of analysis of this, which, which emerges out of a sort of Gramsci understanding of hegemony as a kind of complex, uh, variegated, multilateral, um, interactive field of power that is contested over. And the kind of um, way that I think we need to think about this um, is really to think about this in terms of something uh, like interests. So we need to return to something that's that's rather than thinking about, and you know, this has a role for rationality, but it's certainly not a perspective on the individual, which is purely rationalistic by any means. I think we need to be, um, avoid that as a, as, a, as a kind of, again, a kind of abstract error. And that when thinking about how to theorize politics, we need to think very, very practically. So a lot of my thinking has been prompted by sort of being around the edges of the sort of Jeremy Corbyn project within the UK and its uh, sort of dramatic failure. I'm thinking about, you know, really, why did that failure come about? Um, what, what has been sort of lacking in terms of the sort of practical understanding of strategy? What's been lacking in terms of um, a sophisticated theory of um, political interests and how those can be um, complex, variegated, and um, transformed over time? Um, And really, this is kind of you know how my sort of thinking has evolved. So it's 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 sort of moved away from a sort of normative proposal. This is the world we want, um, and instead, it's saying the central question is just power and how to get it. And that's not at all simple. It's 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 a very um, difficult um, task that that requires us to really understand sort of how power operates and how different forms of power operate together. And really, this is how you can come up with perhaps a proper way of thinking about the relationship between um, smaller and larger scales, or, or as you would sort of put it, the, the individual um, and the collective, is to think about it in this within this sort of broad framework. Because um, I think that maybe explains it better than the, the perhaps the sort of normative abstractions that we were uh, talking about in the Accelerationist Manifesto in particular. I mean, that's partly because it was in a manifesto form. So... Um, I encourage Nick and I to write it in a manifesto form as a way of getting away from, you know, the kind of the academic world where you, where you try and hem and haw and um, render everything sort of conditional and, and um, terribly uncertain and to try and attempt to say as a, sort of a more sort of determinate fashion, what is it that we want? How, what would you declare that you would want? Um, which is an interesting exercise and gives rise to a certain sort of form of writing as a result. But um, I think when you actually get down to thinking about how is it that projects can be realized um, and the kind of um, practical realities of it, you have to get into thinking about things in a different way. Um, 
I think that has to begin from the perspective of, you know, what is power? <laughs> how is it operative? How is it operating on you know, different scales from, you know, the you know, all the way down to the self-personal, but certainly the individual, um, into sort of collective scales and um, up and outwards into the global system. So it's these kinds of considerations that I've been increasingly thinking about, largely prompted by people asking, okay, well, this is what you want, how do you get it? Um, and that's a very difficult question. And what were the biggest uh, lessons to be learned from the failures of the Corbyn campaign for you? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a very, very long list. So it was interesting <laughs> because, because, I mean, it's interesting to think about. So I, I remember Corbyn being, he's going through the process of being nominated for leaders. The, the Labour Party has this thing where, um, at least in the past, you know, they had to have MPs had to, within the parliamentary Labour Party had to nominate people who were going to be candidates that would then be put towards the membership. And I, I was in the middle of finishing off my PhD at the time. And I was sort of, there was a bit of buzz about this because he almost didn't get the nominations and then he did get the nominations on Twitter. He was also my local MP at the time. So I was living in Italy in the north. Um, so it was a bit of excitement. I think, ah, oh, this could be something. This could be something. Um, and, you know, then, then there was this sort of dramatic, um, you know, um, ability to take over the leadership of the, you know, uh, a large national socialist party um, and to have it kind of certainly in communication with the genuinely radical left, albeit in an uneven and, and, and sort of negotiated and not always very comfortable way. Um, but, you know, this, it was interesting because Corbyn was, I always object to the sort of Benite perspective that, that, that Corbyn sort of represents this, this kind of, um, what might be described as sort of moralizing socialism. Um, whereas I sort of think, think of the thing that I'm interested in is maybe a Machiavellian socialism. Um, so there was always this kind of, I think, a, a fundamental problem. Um, and there was a problem in terms of, you know, both this particular part of the left that, that took over the party, um, you know, their uh, particular set of interests, their set of fellow travelers, their set of you know, sort of weaknesses, which were um, exploited over time. Um, but it was also their kind of their way of thinking about, um, you know, how, how they were going to get what they wanted, have a sense of strategy and tactics. And the way that interacted with um, the Labour Party, another institution um, that has very flawed understandings of strategy. So there's, a, there's innumerable failures, but the, the, the sort of the, the things that I was, I was sort of most interested in and, and constantly talking to people involved in um, the Corbyn project about, not always very successfully, um, were things um, especially relating to uh, things like their approach to how they handled the media. So you're faced with an immediate problem if you have a kind of, hot, sort of semi-hostile takeover of a, of a large socialist party in a highly neoliberalised uh, country like, like the UK, which is that the, you know, the, the mass media will be almost entirely against you, including most of the sort of allegedly left-leaning mass media. They'll, they'll be entirely against you. So this is a, this is a reality. Now, you can, you can bemoan that reality. You can um, you know, declaim it. But you actually need to have a strategy uh, to deal with this this reality, because um, if you don't, you will you will find that it's it's very very hard to um, spread your message, to communicate anything about what you want. Um, and uh, Nick and I and, and another friend of ours did come up with a kind of a, a proposal which we sent to the 
leader's office, which was talking about how you know one approach, sort of governed by an idea of left populism and our own particular interpretation of that, how they might be able to proceed. Um, and they didn't really ever they didn't really ever follow it. And it's it's understandable why they might not have done because largely because it was very risk taking. So it, it acknowledges that you know the only way to kind of really um, press your case is to take quite a dangerous um, approach to the media. Um, and, you know, so what we saw instead of, of an approach which tried to use the media against itself, um, instead what we saw was uh, sort of constant bemoaning of the, of the media not giving them a, a fair chance, although that was completely predictable, and um, everybody involved knew that that was exactly what they would be like. Simultaneously, um, you know, um, <laughs> there, there was almost no effort to, to, to try and um, think about how to get around this. There are other issues as well. So there, there were some, some very specific issues in terms of, um, you know, a lack of um, ability to politically educate the, um, the membership. So the membership of the party sw has swelled enormously to being the, the largest socialist party in Europe um, by some way. But there was, there was no real attempts to kind of um, politically educate them in the sense of trying to transform their, their consciousness, transform their um, worldviews. Um, and to uh, you know, train them for, for the kind of task ahead. There was also a kind of, for all that kind of the, the trajectory that Jeremy Corbyn and some of his main allies came from, which you can think of as being sort of broadly democratic socialists, um, and, and with certain people with a, with a real interest in democratizing the structures of the, the party, what you actually had a lot of the time was um, not particularly democratic. And again, this, so you had this, we ended up with a very large standing army of members, and they were sort of only really being used uh, during elections as, as kind of um, shock troops. Then the sort of, I mean, there's, there's many other issues which they had, but one final thing that I'm very interested in is the way that um, increasingly there's a kind of, what I, what I might call the sort of dialectic of socialism or dialectic of the contemporary left um, in much of the Western world. And this is sort of run from the early uh, years of the, the 2010s when you had the kind of um, Occupy, you had this sort of neo-anarchist uh, trajectory. And then over time you have a lot of these uh, these same people becoming disenchanted because they, they didn't seem to get what they want um, and switch over to being obsessively interested in, in um, conventional electoral politics. You can see this especially in the United States with the Sanders campaign and in the UK uh, with Corbyn uh, and his uh, time leading the Labour Party. Accompanying this, you have a kind of um, a sort of mindset uh, shift where you've, you've shifted from wanting to, to have this kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, an immediate politics on the street where we'll build utopia in a lot of low shacks to um, instead this kind of super technocratic, um, almost sort of mimicry of the worst aspects of the sort of phenomenal appearance, the semblance of neoliberal. Um, uh, sort of political technocracy, which is the sort of the form of the think tank and an obsession with policy. So you end up with a lot of the debate and a lot of the activity, particularly from the sort of far left elements within um, and around Labour over the last few years of getting the right policies on the agenda. And activists were quite successful at doing that. So you ended up with quite a lot of very interesting policies around things like um, the Green New Deal um, and uh, similar uh, uh, policies in other areas. 
unfortunately, what you ended up with was, was that there was no kind of real discussion around what do we believe. There was no attempt to create a new um, kind of ideology for the new socialism that was clearly underway and, 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 and is being just stated. And there was this, this sort of obsession with policy instead of strategy. So always, you know, this, this, this end point rather than thinking about the process of how we get to the end point. And that all really sort of added up together with some very particular political circumstances um, to lead to the, the defeat. And now, you know, you have um, uh, Keir Starmer in charge of the party, um, and his approach is basically um, consensus. So his strategy is consensus. And, um, you know, effectively he's hoping that the, the, the current Conservative administration fall from grace, and that he'll be he'll be handed um, power in the next general election. I'm not sure if it will work. It's, it's highly possible that could happen, but I, I think it's I think it's possible that that won't happen. And I think he's radically underestimated again the power of the media to crush any um, opponents. Um, they've done that with su such a variety of different socialist leaders over the past 15 years um, that they could make short work of Starmer. I'm sure. Equally, he underestimates the power of the UK Tory party to reinvent itself. It's, it's an it's a amazing machine for, for winning power and keeping power. When, when you say um, underestimate the power of media, I understand that you are talking about mainstream media. Or are you as well uh, having in consideration like internet subcultures or different forms of manipulating or designing the public opinion via social networks, etc. Yes, yeah, so I, mean, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So in terms of the, these, these, maybe these two areas, um, it was interesting because you can see in the 2017 general election that um, there were certain ways in which um, Although there was strong mainstream media opinion against Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, they were able to um, use social media, alternative media, to um, you know quite a good effect in terms of um, especially getting um, people who usually don't vote to turn up to vote. But this is this is generally what what left wing parties nowadays have to do. Even if you're talking about somebody like Obama, who's kind of you know centre right liberal, really. Um, even he had to, you know, put together a, a unique um, lot of people generally who didn't vote. And in 2017, Labour was able to do that. It was able to do that through digital means. In 2019, this was no longer possible. They actually did they actually got less new people to turn up um, than before. And there's some interesting reasons as to why that is. So partially, that's because you know social media um, platforms, especially Facebook, changed some of the ways in which they were. Um, treating content. So they um, they wanted to, basically Facebook wanted to get people to engage more with the platform. So they um, changed the, the kind of salience in feeds of um, news and other sort of political content in order to um, increase the amount of personal content. And that had the effect of, you know, reducing the amount of organic sharing that could be going on that would be vital um, to this sort of politics. Equally, the Conservative Party absolutely had mastered new media technologies. Um, uh, again, they'd um, absolutely kind of um, 
adopted the very, the very sort of best, in inverted commas, techniques in terms of um, fine-tuning messages through digital means, so that you know, running um, many, many thousands of different um, uh, political adverts and messaging, doing lots of A/B testing, so you can really fine-tune your message, doing a lot of incredibly selective targeting um, in order to um, hit different voters with different messages. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the, there's a whole other conversation that we could have around um, the even more underhand kind of uh, digital methodologies of manipulation, so things like um, troll armies and uh, bots and similar kind of phenomena. Um, I'm not sure how determinant they were in this election. I think I think they were active. I'm, it's, it's unclear as to how. Uh, yeah. But it's unclear as to how forceful they were, um, some of which might have been run by foreign governments, some of which might have been run by conventional political parties. Um, but I think the sort of the core elements were, um, you know, this an ability to, to, to master this, um, this sort of the modern conventional digital communication strategies um, and equally have a kind of dominant position within the um, conventional media. And, and these yeah. two combine very effectively. But the Labour Party, I mean, I, I have a friend who has been very involved in analysing their, um, their sort of digital campaigning um, backbone. And they're, completely, they're just completely out of date. Um, they're, they're just incredibly out of date. And this, this goes back way before Corbyn, but was not addressed by Corbyn, and will presumably be, be um, continuing into the present era. They're incredibly out of date. They, they don't seem to understand that you're in an arms race elections are um, technological and organisational arms races and anything that worked last time won't work again because if the opposition are if the opposition are intelligent they'll they'll know what's going on and they'll, they'll have copied you and they'll have upgraded yeah but this is really interesting and as well uh, has a lot to do with the fact that as, as a lot of people by now they are aware that traditional leftists lost the, the, the grip with the narrative of the future um, and how all, as we were mentioning, all these uh, alt-right internet subcultures, by contrast, they construct new narratives, they are very good at world building and they are very good at providing uh, significance to their Yeah, basically their daily lives. And I am interested about your opinion of all these uh, new types of anti-woke uh, left, these so-called dirtbag leftists that seem to engage with digital media, social networks, But at the same time, they are extremely critical with social justice warriors and all sorts of, let's say, um, common grounds from the traditional idea of being a progressive left-wing thinker. Yeah. So, so again, this kind of goes back to what, what I'm kind of increasingly thinking about is this sort of dialectic of neo-socialism. So you get this kind of It's like a ping-ponging back and forth. And you can see this in terms of the way that um, 
and so-called dirt bag left, but you might consider it a sort of, I mean, it, it, it takes different forms. So some of, some of which are, are, are relatively inoffensive and some of which I think are um, grotesquely reactionary. Um, yeah. Um, so I think this is again, this kind of ping-ponging and, and particularly in American context, this is very much formed around the incredible predominance of the, um, the Democrat party. And the Democrat Party and, and its particular um, elites, um, particularly in the wake of the, the sort of failure of Sanders in 2016 um, to win the nomination after some sort of quite bad backroom dealings by the Democratic establishment, who are basically liberal neoliberals, broadly speaking, right? So they are, um, you know, they are they're pro market, they're pro using the state to enforce market like relations. Um, they're also for, uh, you know, um, black, uh, women's, uh, queer civil rights. Um, and they will at least pretend, even if often you know, not in reality, to, to, to doff their caps to the sort of leading edge of what sometimes gets called, um, you know, woke or SJW culture, um, which, uh, Yes, so this is so. So it, it's largely because they are attacking. They, they've identified that the left needs to attack this grouping, but I think in so doing, they've kind of perhaps themselves, or at least, opened up a, a reactionary leftism that is, um, you know, uh, morally bad and um, uh, sort of incredibly unimaginative, because often accompanying this. Um, rejection of elements of kind of um, uh, sort of liberatory, emancipatory, um, so-called identity-based struggles, um, you know, they, they equally valorize quite a conservative vision of what is the good society and the good economy. And it's basically, um, you know, 1960s Sweden, that's, that's what they want. And, you know, it's a world where they want everybody to be working. You know, it's, it's, it's not a post-work world. It's a world where work is sanctified. Um, it often accompanies, and, you know, it's, with some of these, um, you know, trajectories, some of these dirtbag dirt leftists, reactionary leftists, I think, really, trajectories, they, you know, are embracing things quasi-ironically like trad waves. But this does fit in with this kind of, you know, returning to the post-war 30 glorious years, European you know, social democracy kind of, perspective. Um, so I think I think they're not only wrong in rejecting the sort of emancipatory identity-based struggles, but I think they're also wrong in their sort of their economic vision, I think is is out of date. I think it's um, it's inherently reactionary and um, I think it's impossible. Uh, I think you, you, to some extent that we are in a period of sort of deglobalization in certain respect. But I think you're not going to go back to, to the the, the kind of economic and industrial base necessary to support that that kind of society, and we shouldn't really want to either. So this would this would be my criticism of them, which is that they, through this kind of process of, you know, identifying a kind of enemy, which is the centrist, the centrist liberal neoliberals, um, they have sort of overreacted and they've they've jumped, sort of even a kind of conceptual liberalism, which I think is not an enemy of the left, um, inherently. Um, and you know, in so doing, they've ended up sort of marrying themselves to a, a sort of a political economic paradigms that are not—they don't really have much relationship to the future. They don't. 
have much relationship to what's really going on in the world today or, or people's real struggles. Um, yeah, I and mean, I'm fairly, I'm fairly critical of them, even though I would, I would admit that there, there does need to be a criticism of the liberal neoliberals and that um, you know, centrist uh, elites have created huge amounts of um, problems and breaking the kind of, you know, a um, sort of multipolar system where you either have, you know, in America, a terrifyingly right-wing Republican or a fairly right-wing Democrat, and those are your two choices. Like, breaking that is important. But simultaneously, I think, you know, um, alienating people who are your natural allies um, through this kind of rejection of you know, so-called woke politics is foolhardy, and I think the, the, the economic vision they present is is out of date. It's really interesting what you are saying because I think you are right, but at the same time I see uh, the very same uh, quasi-conservative and reactionary movements in some uh, leftists, like anti-woke leftists from Spain nowadays. Maybe it is because uh, it's a kind of reaction to the... Uh, instantiations of the old right in Spain uh, and disengagement with meme culture but I don't see this as a purely North American approach to the to the left but I think you are right I mean they they exhibit extremely reactionary uh, behavior in order to feedback their impact and to, to gain more momentum. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, you can, you can certainly, you can see similar tendencies in the UK and I'm sure elsewhere in the world that there, that there is that, you know, one of the kind of contemporary left meet, you know, sort of underground media strategies, which is possible is this kind of, you know, um, sort of reactionary, um, anti-liberal, Uh, leftism, and it takes various stripes. I mean, sometimes you see it in sort of like quasi-ironic Stalinists who yeah. are sort of not, are sort of not ironic, um, who you can see in certain British um, labor union um, movements um, who are, you know, terrifyingly homophobic and transphobic. Uh, I think it's, I can understand sort of how it's come about. I can understand how it's come but I think it's ultimately perhaps a bit of an error because it's it's I, I, I think it doesn't necessarily um you know beyond achieving this task of kind of identifying and attacking liberal neoliberals as an enemy which, which they certainly are um i i don't think that it's it's it's, it's capable of really realizing itself um largely just because if you look at the kind of electric If you're thinking kind of at any point of, a, of an electoral politics, then you need to look at the kind of coalitions that are necessary in order to achieve some kind of victory. And they do, and you would of necessity have to have all of the, the kind of um, people who would be most attracted to the sort of you know, liberatory, emancipatory politics of identity. There's no way around that. So on a purely just sort of ruthless level, there's no way around that. Um, it's before you even get into the sort of damaging effects of completely rejecting all forms of liberalism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think it does become um, damaging. And to a certain extent, it's about, 
you know, if you look at if you look at the alt right, for example, I think it's interesting that you mentioned them in relationship to these sort of reactionary leftists. So to some extent, they are responding to a similar kind of cultural moment, to a desire to, to you know, make the left not be a bunch of kind of do-gooders, which I absolutely agree with, that the left shouldn't, shouldn't just be a, a bunch of you know, liberal do-gooders. That's, um, that's sort of disgusting. You know, and, and, and therefore, they've kind of availed themselves of certain rhetorical strategies that are in common with the, um, with the alt-right. But I think, I think we can go too far in, in even identifying the alt-right as being particularly successful. Um, I, th I think like, there's, there's been an awful lot of um, ink spilled about um, incredibly marginal, if interesting, uh, sort of digital far-right cultures but who, in reality, I'm not sure have necessarily had that much influence. This is a controversial point. Lots of people disagree with me on this. Um, yeah, I am. I, I, I mean, there's this sure. tendency. Yeah, I mean, there's this tendency to interpret like you know the victory of Trump as like yeah, mean magic did this. But that is just the alt right's line. That's their PR. Um, the the actual. I mean, looking at the actual evidence, why did Trump win? Well, he he scored um, more electoral college votes from the you know, certain swing states, who was it who voted for him? Was it people who would have had any contact with any kind of alt-right means? Probably not. So I am not disregarding this, uh, but I am trying to understand the mood and the general atmosphere, for example, now in this extreme time of lockdowns, etc., where you, you can see the reactions of people uh, in a quite harsh Way I see how it impregnated uh, certain behaviors, and it serves as a kind of frame of reference for a lot of people that maybe them the, the electoral result is not so much an outcome of certain strategies led by these internet subcultures but i see certain reactions for example i mean i don't know if we should uh, say like public names of people that maybe we we all know but uh, leftist figures uh, giving opinion about certain uh, the political decisions about the lockdown in Spain, talking in terms of uh, of house arresting and engaging with with a new way of framing uh, theory, a new way of reshaping the idea of uh, emancipatory politics. That it's an ongoing process and that is changing certain uh, uh, minds of people that they are, I mean, they are really young and they are uh, approximating themselves to the politics that are emerging nowadays. I am trying to think about my own approach to politics when I was a teenager and I was reading uh, in light of the imagine Seattle demonstrations, uh, situa uh, situationist texts or stuff like that. Um, 
what's the current atmosphere now for young people engaging with politics today? And it's uh, difficult to question the role of this very, as you said, grotesque, uh, reactionary mood that seems to impregnate both old right and this anti-woke dirt back group of people. If you know what I mean, because maybe my comment was all over the place, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because to, to a certain extent, um, you know, the, I think it's, I think it's a bit, I think it could, I think it could be complicated. So certainly in terms of, you know, my experience of the UK left, there, there are a variety of different kind of subgroupings that you might, you might talk about some of which would have some sympathies for these sort of reactionary viewpoints, um, not just young people, but often old people, um, who are an important part um, of many activist groups today. Um, uh, but there's, you know, there are large numbers of people who are absolutely wedded to, to, to the core kind of like emancipatory identity political agendas. And um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think in terms of the kind of the particular sort of emerging mood um, that's, that's coming out of our times, particularly coronavirus, particularly, you know, the, the kind of the situation developing in the United States around kind of anti-black violence. Um, yeah, I think it's hard to pin down a determinate mood yet. I think there's a, there's a lot of things that are currently in process. Um, but my main argument isn't to say that, you know, right-wing politics is not influential. It's mainly just to say that you know, the alt-right are a, a fairly marginal element and that the sort of mainstream far-right are, are far more dangerous. And, and they're the ones who are already in power and they're the ones who are already, you know, and have been for, for many decades, um, yeah, you know, writing the most, in the most popular newspapers in the country. And, and, and you know, they're not, they're not interesting. They're boring. They're very dull. They're, they're, they're incredibly dull people. Um, they're not exciting. They're not really subversive. Um, they're not creative. But that doesn't matter. They're the ones that we should be very significantly worried about. And now, of course, there are some exceptions to this, particularly in terms of things like 4chan and 8chan and, and, and the successor boards and their influence on um, spectacular gun violence and the gamification of gun violence, um, which is worrying and, 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 and certainly worth um, investigating and opposing as far as possible. But I do think there was a, there was a kind of a tendency in the kind of, sort of post-2016 era to immediately go, Oh, Nick Land, he's 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 becomes hugely influential. And it's like I can see why you might want to report that, because that's an exciting thing to report from an exciting in the sort of worrying sense, right? Um, you know, because Nick Land actually has some interesting in the sense of very worrying but at least intellectually worked out ideas. Um, mm. so that that makes him, you know, interesting to report on. Whereas the sort of reality of sort of boring neo-fascism is a lot less interesting to report on. So there tends to be a lot of attention being paid to relatively marginal, relatively heterodox figures, when the reality is this, you know, it's a sort of dull but uh, effective fascism of the kind being practiced by people like Viktor Orban, you know, which is uh, incredibly successful and, and on a global basis becoming more and more successful. And yes, that does have some relationship with you know, extreme digital far-right underground cultural movements. But it's, it's, it's somewhat marginal. 
we've sort of we're so interested in the new shiny exciting thing that we've missed the sort of boring lumbering but i think far more um frightening phenomena um, yeah, I'm interested, like, um, yeah, because, uh, for example, in the book, you make very string interesting demands and very future-looking, uh, like, you know, demand full automation, demand universal basic income. So it's like these issues that a few years back, they were kind of uh, exciting and kind of, you know, uh, stirring up a discussion. Like uh, now, people like Luis de Guindos, the vice president of the European Bank, is um, in Corona times uh, saying that he will, you know, like to have some universal basic income having, uh, you know, to, to have this as a way of kind of dealing with the current crisis. Um, don't you worry that uh, when capitalists like this are making the same demands that the you know that they basically then what room for the left there is for imagining a future when yes so already this, people I mean, like this yeah, I mean, the point you're making is, is, is very clear and is an, is an important one, I think, which is certainly around things like universal basic income, and certainly in a kind of coronavirus era, you can see that conventional political forces often on, you know, often from the center or even the right are, are proposing this is a serious policy. You know, what, what does that mean for these, for these demands? Well, to sort of go back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, the Labour Party and their sort of failures, their obsession with... Uh, this sort of um, hyperbolic set of policies rather than a kind of uh, an ideology and a worldview and a strategy to bring that about, which might ultimately include some of these policies. Um, if you go back to inventing the future, we are very clear in saying, although most people sort of ignore this, that you know, what makes these policies work is their interaction and their relationship to a broader political project. Um, and... You know, it's certainly the case that there have been many, many attempts to implement or propose things that are being called universal basic income, which don't really fit in with you know, our understanding of it at all, that are that are neither universal nor basic. Um, uh, you know, this is, this, this is the same in terms of the kind of the, the current UBI or kind of guaranteed minimum income that's being proposed in, in Spain and seems to be moving um, moving towards being implemented. Um, you know, that's, that's means-tested, it's set at a relatively low level, I think sort of 450 euros, roughly. Um, now, there are certain people who are in, you know, the sort of UBI community who will settle for anything called the UBI. They're excited by anything that's, that's called that, um, including sort of things like the, the scheme that was trialled in Finland for a few years, um, that are really just, they're kind of conventional welfare state measures. But I think what's, what's, what's important and what I've you know, increasingly realized over time is that you can't just focus on the demands, you can't just focus on the policies, you have to focus on um, the worldview that these policies are, or, or demands are a part of. So there's, it's, you, you can't, in, in you know, separating them from uh, a political project, of course they can, they can always be subverted. Any, any policy can be subverted if it's, if it's removed from a political project and an ideological trajectory that kind of gives it form and, and, and life. So, yeah. 
But then, uh, so my question, my question is, how will it differ from, you know, I mean, you want to achieve this political project through electorate politics, but obviously you, it will require to change, you know, your, as you are saying, the ideology in the Labour Party was not there. The question is like, what politically, I mean, this is something very interesting in inventing the future. And you said that you know, in order, when, once you change the whole infrastructure, there will no, there will, there will not be the possibility to go back to some reactionary uh, political stances. However, the what you don't seem to explain is what kind of political position in organization at the organizational level, what these changes would imply in order to get there, and and that's that's. You know, like because uh, electoral politics seems to be extremely limiting in order to achieve this great uh, uh, ideological transformations that you are talking about. But somehow, how in the, at the time of political and you know, in times of political organization, I mean, this is also really interesting in the sense that you use the word power. You know, like in the in the book. Uh, communism is not so much dealt with. You talk with post-capitalism, uh, and this is a very conscious uh, decision. But um, the question is that, okay, what kind of political, uh, strategically, what, how does this, uh, what does it mean? Because it's like accepting what is already there without giving basically the clues of what will mean at the uh, at, at the level of transformation in political terms apart from you know like what we mentioned before about the hegemony notion and changing the whole notion but at the p political organizational level is it going beyond the electoral democracy uh, parliament that we have is it beyond going beyond the national state all these issues seem to be an extreme direct limit to the intentions that you're having, but they are not problematized as far as I've seen. Yes, so this is this is much more the kind of stuff that I'm I've been working on since inventing the future because clearly all of these are very significant um, problems. So I think first of all to sort of clarify you know when I'm talking about electoral politics, I, I certainly do not think that the entire focus of the political left should be merely on winning elections. That's um, 
very misguided, um, probably wouldn't work anyway, and also even if it did work in terms of winning a, um, a key election, um, you would still be faced with exactly what you just described, the kind of um, institutional and infrastructural inertia that's already been built into um, the system, whether you're talking about global system or the national system or some kind of you know, city level uh, systems. Um, and yeah, this is what power in its more long-lasting forms does. It, it, it you know, rigorously redesigns the world to reinforce itself. This is what neoliberalism was, was, was able to do incredibly effectively um, from you know, the level of the, sort of the built environment in which we exist to our sort of digital environment to you know, the set of incentives that we are we're placed under um, at work and the um, you know, administrative logics through which uh, you know, various kind of management organizations um, administer the world. And all of these things are, are locked in. You know, if we're, you know, I'm, I'm 38 years old, so I was born into neoliberalism. It's all I've really ever known um, until maybe it's, you know, recent wobbly period. Um, so this stuff is very, very hard to shift. It's hard to shift on a kind of individual level. It's hard to shift on a, on a kind of infrastructural uh, level. So certainly when we're talking about electoral politics, again, I would be wary of this all in for purely electoral politics where you are, um, you know, um, you know, basically just purely focused on winning an election. So that doesn't work because we already know that in order to win that election, you already need to have a certain amount of influence, especially in, in, in key areas such as in the media, maybe in terms of, um, you know, having particular industrial sectors already aligned to your cause. Um, and you know, a multifarious set of other, other systems that might serve to reinforce you. So winning the election is just one moment. It might be a culminating moment. It might be the moment that kind of looks like you've taken power, but you already have to have acquired uh, a certain amount of power in certain spheres before that's, before that's even going to be possible. Um, so so, so that would be my kind, of, my kind of my first point. Uh, then, then you talked a little bit about um, some of the complexities involved um, in this and the kind of, you know, certainly in Inventing the Future, we don't talk about international relations. We largely avoid that discussion altogether. And clearly, um, you know, the way that our political world is kind of quantized, it's quantized into states. This is the kind of juridical structure of um, spatial power. Um, so the, the, there's then clearly key questions around you know, how is it that global change can be prosecuted? And here we have to talk in fairly sketchy terms because we have, a, you know, limited sort of sets of historical data to draw on in terms of how previous global kind of paradigm changes have, have occurred. But certainly here you can again think about, you know, rather than it being an all-in-one process, this is something that I want to really get away from is this sort of leftist obsession, whether it's on the electoralist parts of the left where they think, we just need to win this election, then everything can be changed for the better. And it's like, well, you won't win the election because you haven't put sufficient things to support you already in place. And even if you do win the election, you'll be stopped from doing most of the things you want to do. So that's the electorist left. But it's also on the kind of, you know, insurrectionist left, you know, whether that's communist or, or, or anarchist in nature, where similarly there's this kind of addiction to notions of it must be all in one. It must be, everything must be changed in this kind of... Um, religious redemptive mode because the world, because the world of power um, and capital are so kind of self-enclosed, so all kind of encompassing, so vacuum sealed that you, you know, there is no, 
there's no outside to, to, to prosecute from. So it has to be um, an immediate redemption of everything, which of course is impossible. So I want to move us away from both of those, both of these like images of, of political strategy, because they 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 don't they don't really have much relationship to, to the reality of the mechanics of power, and they certainly don't give us much to work with. So instead, you know, in terms of both the sort of national pictures and in terms of global change, we need to think about, okay, well, how, you know, first of all, you need to achieve some kind of national foothold. Let's look at the history of neoliberalism. So of course, you know, the left has a completely different set of resources and, and certainly has a, a lot more disadvantages in certain areas than the neoliberals had, but they are maybe a good example of providing we think about them at the right level of kind of abstraction. So the process of kind of neoliberalizing a, a, effectively a Keynesian planet with a sort of Soviet sphere on the side um, was one where you you know you run some initial experiments. You then you know you have certain key states. So the Anglosphere, America and the UK, um, you know, taken over by uh, leaders and parties who are completely committed, or at least the top of the parties are committed to these ideologies. You've got a whole set of you know, policies, political programs, ways of viewing the world, um, and institutions already kind of locked and loaded. These are then, you know, exported um, initially through kind of economic means um, that um, gradually transform first the sort of developed world and then later um, much of the rest of the world. Eventually, you know, the Soviet Union collapses. This, you know, you end up with the post-Soviet world that's quickly trampled. Um, so you begin in stages. It's not all at once. It's not. It's not all or nothing. Um, but there, it doesn't mean it's a continuous process. It doesn't mean it's smooth. It means that it proceeds kind of um, through modules or levels. Um, and, it's, and it's to sort of begin to sort of start prototyping our thinking about strategy in that sense. That I think is would be would be more helpful than these the, than either the sort of electoralist or the insurrectionist. Um, all-in-one approach. So I could go into more specific details. So within certain, um, you know, particular national contexts, that that kind of work would um, maybe express itself differently. Um, equally, you don't necessarily want to start out with a singular, you know, plan like a, a, a blueprint. I, you know, it's important to have things that you're aiming towards, but those don't need to remain the same. You can certainly see how over time, as you bring in more collaborators, you expand your institutional power, maybe you change your kind of spatial basis, that you know certain objectives will be rejected, certain new ones will be put in place instead. So there needs to be a kind of a, a far more kind of variegated, complex understanding about how strategy works as well. Um, maybe you would like to talk, because I was reading your most recent book, um, and I was fascinated by this chapter in which you talk about a legitimate way to apply the findings of complexity theory from the physical sciences into the social domain. And I don't know if you see here um, an appropriate uh, way of uh, connecting this with uh, your recent comments. Yes, so this is sort of explained to the, to the listeners. Um, the book you're talking about is based on my, my PhD thesis, which was looking at basically um, yeah, merging 
social complexity theory and sort of Gramscian political theory um, to kind of um, generate a political theory that could talk about social complexity and use some of the mechanics um, from that field in order to think about you know, political processes and political strategies. Um, so yeah, so certainly um, this was one of my sort of inspirations in terms of you know, how, how can we come up with a, a, a much more intricate, uh, variegated and kind of maybe tractable form of um, hegemonic theory. Because often this is kind of presented as being very much about things like culture and this kind of stuff, although you know, culture is often very much misrepresented as being purely kind of artistic in basis. Um, so I, I want to move away, certainly move away from this understanding of thinking about hegemony as being all about um, culture, which will kind of reduce it today to being about culture wars, although we're not exactly sure of culture wars, so they are clearly still of some significance. Um, but I think w what I kind of wanted to use this, this set of ideas from complexity theory to do was to kind of um, to renovate these structures of thought. And especially this was in terms of thinking about um, levels and layers and the understanding of emergence. So what I'm mainly taking from complexity theory is I want to avoid two things. This is what I write about in the book, uh, which you sort of just referred to. So there's kind of a danger in just coming up with a scientism where you're you know, effectively um, misapplying ideas from the sciences in a way that reduces the complexity of the kind of social phenomena that you're looking at, these sort of inherent complexities relating to sort of extremely high degrees of um, multi-level reflexivity. Um, simultaneously, there's, there was a kind of tendency, maybe in the late 90s, to have um, uh, this sort of very woolly postmodern, sort of mystical postmodernism, um, applying ideas from uh, the complexity sciences to kind of just justify what they always already thought, which was, you know, the world's too complex to understand, um, you know, we epistemologically can't really know anything, but maybe we can intuit um, in a sort of mystical way the kind of deeper processes of the world. Um, I, I kind of want to take a, a third path between the, the sort of the, the, the Pomai mystics and the um, sort of false scientific thinkers. And this is to think about it really just in terms of a series of um, models uh, or kind of models of relationships. And principle amongst these is this, um, the basic idea of social emergence. So um, but to put it very simply, the idea of emergence is that you have certain relationships between things. These could be, you know, we're talking about politics, it's often human beings, but it can be other things. Um, and these elements come together in a set of relationships in time, and they come to take on new properties. So these new properties uh, might be organizational properties, it might be that they become a new kind of thing, um, and this new thing is more than just the sum of all the properties of the parts. And there's an incre incredibly complicated discussion um, in analytic philosophy of science about what is this, how do we understand this, is this real, in what sense is it real? Um, which I got very bogged down and didn't really make it into the, I had to edit it out of the book because it largely becomes very, very um, complicated. Um, about different forms of um, upwards and downwards causation within um, systems. But the basic principles, I think, are key in terms of thinking about how um, power works. So, and it's, it's very important to, be th to think about how you end up with this sort of um, 
multi-stage conception about how maybe political, the assembling of political power can operate. Um, and this is really to think about um, how it is that you can manipulate certain tendencies within a system, the kind of the, the things that are governing how it organizes itself. Um, and then you can use those to transform the system, take on new powers, um, and then you can re repeat this process. This is the basic kind of um, sort of mental model that I've extracted. And this is also you know, corresponds very closely to what I think kind of Gramsci was trying trying to get at, um, often in quite an inchoate form, and which maybe has been lost by some of Gramsci's most influential academic inheritors. So people like McLeod and Muth, they've got some very interesting ideas. However, they do kind of, <laughs> I think they lose some of the most key and important um, elements of, of, of what Gramsci was aiming for. Um, and <laughs> it's ironic that their most famous book is called uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's called Hegemony and Socialist Strategy, because effectively they end up without either of those things. They end up with really very little strategy, and, and certainly kind of a, the concept of hegemony as power fades, I think, a little bit over time. And so the, this is what I want to bring back through this kind of particular lens of thinking about um, these, these complex processes of self-organization um, and emergence. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about yeah the problems of uh, yeah because the ideas of cybernetics, self-organizing systems, uh, complexity theory uh, were applied for maybe not political theory but certainly to capitalism in the forms that we understand now as. Yeah, platform economics, for example, these guys from, from the Silicon Valley were uh, extremely influenced by, yeah, radical constructivists, uh, cy uh, cy cybernetic theory, etc. And I think, uh, yeah, there is a kind of uh, problematic approach from the critical. Uh, theories uh, in which we try to transpose ideas from physical systems in which um, determination and causation is to some extent discrete in certain cases to living systems and systems that evolve having into account in determination but not in determination from the uh, point of view of sensitivity to initial conditions but in determination in terms of producing a second nature producing culture etc so even uh, the transposition from the physical Inf uh, informational theoretic point of view to the biological uh, perspective is, is is quite problematic in my opinion. But to the um, to the when you mention this, yeah, this this mystical approach, uh, this is really interesting because you see a, a kind of pattern or common behavior from these nineties figures in which uh, yeah 
complexity uh, functions at the expense of having to adopt this kind of mystical attitude, almost religious attitude, in which you you have to uh, base your movements on intuition and uh, natural fallacies and stuff like that. And obviously, I mean, uh, this idea of self-organization relies on the idea of balance or achieving a kind of balance that we know that I, I, I mean, you you are not you are aware, very aware of this you know, as far because I didn't finish the book. But uh, I mean, nonlinearity is demarcated by fluctuations that are far from the idea of equilibrium or the idea that there is such a thing as a kind of movement towards equilibrium in nature. Uh, and I mean in human nature or second nature, you name it, the idea of achieving uh, self-organization towards any kind of equilibrium, political or social, is, is, is quite crazy, if you know what I mean. Because any fluctuation uh, diverts the trajectory of any social organization. We can see this uh, pandemic as a result of a flat tail with very low probability, but changing completely the social landscape. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think you can, you can certainly see um, you know, the COVID-19 crisis as this kind of um, fluctuation that's, that's radically... Well, it's, it's interesting because I think in certain respects it is radically changing the global system in fairly obvious ways. Um, but I think maybe if we look at its longer term role, which we can't really say with any real surety yet, but certainly if you're looking at it, what was already happening while it, while it was occurring, before, before it occurred, well, you can see that there's already this kind of, there's a weakening to neoliberalism, and it's, um, it's not complete. It's certainly not a sort of immediate overnight collapse, um, but in certain respects, you can see that its, it's grip has loosened on some of its core countries. So this would be, yeah. you know, again, America, the UK, the countries that kind of are the first major, uh, you know, after, after Chile adopting um, forms of neoliberal rule um, in the late 1970s and uh, 1980s, that um, you know, the, the ability of kind of neoliberal framing to, to continue to frame what's acceptable breaks down. You can see the emergence of you know, new forms of populism, including on the right, but also the left, perhaps to a lesser extent, these are already kind of breaking. And this breakage does not yet kind of affect other parts of the neoliberal assemblage that it clearly, you know, there are, there are many sort of, especially infrastructural, administrative, kind of educational and even psychological elements to it, which, which remain in place and therefore are now in this sort of uneasy tension. So you, you have, you know, a, essentially you know, far-right populist leaders who are still sort of working with neoliberal systems, but it's, it's, everything is uneasy and in this process of kind of renegotiation um, of dynamic instability. And it's into this that, that coronavirus erupts, um, including, you know, on a global level, a sort of global semi-deglobalization, things like trade wars, um, 
increasing by you know multipolarity in terms of uh, geopolitical strategies coming from China and elsewhere. Um, you know, this is this is the thing that this is, um, immediate crisis is erupting into. It's already a we're already in a crisis. We're already a, a crisis of I think the global hegemony of neoliberalism, and this is the, the sort of the peak. Hopefully, this is the peak because otherwise, I, I, I don't want to see what what comes next. But the, yeah. so far, so far this year just delivers you know crescendo upon crescendo um, of um, chaos and um, mayhem. Um, so it's within this context that you can, well, we're in this, you know, we're certainly in a situation of incredible sort of dynamic instability. But it's also very curious that this, this comes at the moment when large numbers of populations are effectively immobilized to a greater extent. You've got this weird double function of an incredibly turbulent crisis where large numbers of people are unable to really do anything. So that in itself is, is, is fairly unprecedented. It's interesting seeing that the um, uh, you know, racial justice protests, Black Lives Matter protests coming out of America and also sweeping the UK now, um, certainly in London yesterday, is, is kind of a break with this um, social distancing. I'm not sure how these two things interact, but um, probably not in a good way. Uh, it's very unclear to see how this is going to play out. But you can certainly see like what are the, what are the forces, what are the tendencies What's the existing conditions that are still from the past that are still helping to structure the situation? And you can try and, I mean, this is something that I'm working on at the moment, um, in the book that I'm writing right now, is trying to think about the, sort of the present situation. I'm just trying, and this, is, this book has been massively put off, first of all, by uh, <laughs> Labour losing the general election so badly, so that made certain material completely irrelevant. And now the coronavirus crisis um, and everything else that's happened in recent months. Um, has kind of uh, given given us a lot more to to, to, to chew on um, when it comes to thinking about what what is actually going on. But I think the, the broader analysis remains correct that we have we are seeing a kind of a collapse of neoliberalism at certain levels. Certain other levels it continues. Certain sort of institutions and infrastructure that's built continued, um, and you are seeing this kind of a grand scale contest um, in which the left is losing. Uh, the right has. Um, more rapidly transformed itself, um, and is is you know everywhere very successful, and the form that it's taking is a is a sort of um, boring fascism, um, which doesn't mean it's it's often not you know very violent, um, and you know it's into this that the the coronavirus has has, has kind of thrown a you know a, a crisis within a crisis, and um, again this is disoriented and destabilized. And you know the, the the forces that will win out will be those that can restabilize a, a kind of a new trajectory for the for the global or, or particular national systems. And the, you know once if they're able to do that and they're able to get you know enough, particularly in democratic but also in non-democratic states, you need to enfranchise sufficient portions of key populations in order to you know, be able to rule the rest of the the, the nation or region effectively. So. It, will, it can't just be completely oppressive. It needs to be doing some uh, some things that some people want. Um, and the forces that are able to do that are going to be the ones that, that predominate. And you know, it still looks like the, the forces of the new right have the advantage. Do you have any other question, Martin, or something that no, you no, see? I, th I think this is very. I think this is very good. Or do you think it was too pessimistic, Alex? <laughs> 
It's very pessimistic. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is just the state of play at the moment. So, you know, thing, things could change. I mean, you are you are seeing you have seen enormous changes in left wing movements throughout the world, innovating in various interesting ways. I do think there are some you know there's some dangers, which is this kind of reactionary temptation that that, that some are fallen into, but. Um, I think there is, there is, you know, I don't really like talking in terms of hope or pessimism. Um, you know, there's only reality, there's only the world as it is. That's, that, that's yeah. all there is. And our, and our attempts to kind of transform it in the ways that are, that are kind of available to us. Um, but I don't think in the long run, necessarily, that even the new right has a paradigm that's going to be amazingly stable. Um, I think that there's some, there's some fundamental tensions between the global economic, financial, and uh, sort of digital systems with the sort of neo-national paradigm. I think that those, those tensions are very unstable. Um, I think that the inability to manage coronavirus for the most part, I mean, apparently Orban has done okay in Hungary, um, maybe, but for the most part, neo-nationalists have done rather poorly. Hopefully this will you know, come back um, and have some kind of um, political effects upon them. I hope it does. And of course, the environmental crisis, which is continuing, maybe at an ever so slightly slower pace because of the, the slight decline in you know industrial output and energy consumption over the last few months, but it's still happening. The news has been bumped way down in the agenda, the kind of global agenda, but it's the news is still there and it's absolutely terrible and terrifying. And again, there are, there there will be different ways that, that that can be, you know, relatively stabilized, relatively speaking. So, you know, some of these will be you know, maybe eco-fascist in in um, in approach. Some of them, you know, might um, take on a more interesting leftist form. I do think again there is this there is this tension that perhaps can be negotiated, perhaps can't, um, between the sort of sort of neo-nationalist model and you know the need for global action. But that doesn't mean that we'll end up with global action. We might just end up with <laughs> a terribly bad situation of countries trying to you know um, outdo each other on you know, exploiting the remaining, uh, you know, exploiting their carbon um, emitting energy sources and beggaring each other's neighbours, you know, effectively erecting giant walls to those areas where you can still grow crops in the future. But there will, you know, and there already are, you know, pressures against that. We need to, you know, try and work out how we can put these forces together in a way that's going to avoid these various um, dark futures that might come. Again, quite pessimistic. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, as you said, that's the current state of affairs. The moment, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's been great. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for the very interesting questions.